Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We enter into our fifth segment, our fifth installment in this new series, Going Public, Living Out Loud the Gospel of the Kingdom. And we have been digging into uh, Paul's prayer here in the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians. And in particular this morning, focusing in on prayer and living in God's new world. Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. Keep it open on your lap in front of you. Uh, and let's read it together. It's also on the screen for us. I want to encourage you to lift your voices and read this together with me again today. I have us do this because I'm a firm believer that expression makes deeper impression. And so as we express the word together, it finds a deeper place in our hearts and minds as well. Lift your voices nice and loud. Uh, I want to see these Christmas balls on the tree shaking because our voices are so loud today as we declare the word of the Lord. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of King Jesus, to all God's holy ones in King Jesus who are in Philippi. Together with the overseers and ministers, grace to you and peace from God our Father and King Jesus the Lord. I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of this, I'm convinced. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you. You have me in your hearts here in prison as I am, working to defend and bolster up the gospel. You are my partners in grace, all of you. Yes, God can bear witness how much I'm longing for all of you with the deep love of King Jesus. And this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all astute wisdom. Then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and be sincere and faultless on the day of Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living, fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. I, I want you to just notice this with Paul's writing, particularly in this letter of Philippians, because it shows us, and Paul is deliberately and very intentionally writing the way he is here, even in these opening in words that as he brings greetings to the Philippians, he's trying to show them, even from the get-go, how to live the gospel, how to be the people of Christ in the context, the Roman cultural context, the pagan context that they were in, how to live the gospel. 
And a lot of these notes that Paul takes, even in these, the, these opening words, how he brings greetings, how he addresses them, these were all common ways of writing a letter in that day, in Paul's day, in this particular Roman era. We may not think anything of it. it, it we don't necessarily write letters this way, but in some ways there are similarities here. When we write a letter to someone, perhaps not as common today as it used to be in the day of email and texting and, and uh, Facebook Messenger and all of this, but we would say hello, we would bring greetings, we would say things like, I trust you are well. And Paul is, is, is deliberately doing these things which to the Philippians would have been relatively new ways of communicating. And he's doing so because Paul understood that this was a common way of writing a letter of communication in his day. And so what he's doing is he's demonstrating to the Philippians how to subversively enter in and engage the very cultural context that you are in, but to do so in a way that is redemptive and that has kingdom purpose to it. And so he conveys the way he structures the letter, the way he says hello and greets them, and the way he refers to himself and the other leaders in the church. This was all, this was not just by, by chance. This was, this was not without purpose. This was not arbitrary for Paul. He was writing with great deliberation, even in these opening words, with the purpose of conveying to the church in Philippi, here's how to be the people of Christ. Here's how to live out loud the gospel of the kingdom, even in the way that we communicate with one another, even in the way that we engage with the fabric of the culture that we are in, but do so in a way that lets the light of Christ shine in the midst of the darkness. So notice that. I make a point of saying that because I, I don't want you to think that, well, you know, this is just the opening part and Paul's just kind of saying warm hellos and making, making small talk and sentiments and there's not really a whole lot of meaning here. There is a boatload of meaning, meaning in these words and purpose and significance. Prayer and living in God's new world. And Paul is wanting to show them how to do that even in the way he is writing this very letter. The way he is structuring this letter to them and laying it out. And it's important that we see that because it has something to teach us as well. About our culture and our context. And rather than just being another group of people that despise the culture and speak against it and complain about these days that we're living in and the terrible world that we're a part of and how things are falling, rather than doing all of that, because there's enough voices out there doing that, and you know what? Those voices aren't really making a whole lot of difference. Let's be redemptive instead. Let's look at how can we be the people of Christ and shine the light of Christ 
in the midst of this context in a way that is redemptive. And that actually makes use of elements of our cultural context to live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. I mentioned digital media a moment ago. Facebook, Twitter. Especially in this day. How can these mediums be used? Because Lord knows, you know as well as I do, how these mediums are used in very destructive ways, in very hateful ways, in very hellish kinds of ways. With all the expression that is put out there, how can we instead use these mediums of communication that are not by way of letters so much anymore, how can we use them as agents of light and good news and sharing the love of Christ? Oh, Lord God, when you give your servants to endeavor at any great matter, grant us also to know that it is not the beginning, but the continuing of the same unto the end, until it be thoroughly finished, which yields the true glory through Him who for the finishing of your work laid down His life, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. This wonderful old prayer that I just recited to you is attributed to the 16th century sailor and world explorer, Sir Francis Drake. He reminds us that when God leads us to undertake any great piece of work, it is not only the beginning, but the continuing and the finishing that yields true glory. Drake himself was certainly a finisher as well as a beginner. You may be aware that along the exterior of the legislative library in the city of Victoria are 14 statues of individuals who held prominence in the early history of the territory now known as British Columbia. One of those statues depicts Sir Francis Drake. Although his particular significance for British Columbia is disputed, his significance for world exploration is certain. He was a legend for his military exploits and in sailing right around the world. How many know once you've set off on a journey like that, there's no stopping point halfway? The confidence Paul has, St. Paul here in this letter that he's writing to the Philippians, is that God himself is a finisher. Turn to somebody and tell them that, will you? God is a finisher. Go ahead. 
tell the person behind you, in front of you, beside you, God is a finisher. God is a finisher as well as a beginner. And this is especially explicit in this account of Paul's prayer, which reaches a climax in verse 6. And we read it together a moment ago. Which almost casually shows the theological roots of all Paul's prayer and with Paul's whole life. He says, of this I am convinced. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. Suddenly, the immediate context, Paul and Philippi working together receives a much larger frame with these words. The gospel of which they are partners has a start date and a goal, an ultimate objective. God will finish what He has started. The solid sense of providence and purpose and promise of utter divine reliability and faithfulness is at the heart of Israel's Scriptures. And it is the only thing that kept God's people from collapsing entirely at several points, particularly when they were in exile. In Babylon, In Assyria, Paul here with the people of Christ in Philippi sees it undergirded even more by the events concerning Jesus. Paul sees all of the divine reliability and faithfulness of God. He sees God's promise, God's purpose, God's providence undergirded even more by these events concerning Jesus. Had the Philippians begun to doubt? Perhaps. Is that why Paul is making a point of saying this? Because with this verse, Paul kind of digresses. If you look at the, the, the verses around this particular verse, he, he kind of digresses from what he's saying. And there's, a, there's some, some question as to what the purpose of this particular verse serves in joining together the greater body of this particular chapter that we're looking at. Were the Philippians beginning to doubt? Perhaps they knew of Paul's imprisonment and the possibility that it might be a capital offense and that he might be indeed executed as they lost jobs and friends and social standing themselves in their own community? Was this gospel of the kingdom movement just a strange new fad that had appeared to promise much? but would in the end actually fizzle out? 
Paul is emphatic. No. This is from God. And it will last. I am confident of this, that the one who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. As we move towards the return of King Jesus. The day that He returns. So, so what is this good work that Paul is talking about? What, what was its beginning and what will be its end? In what sense will God complete it until the day of Messiah Jesus' return? Well, as we began to look at last week, it is the work of sainthood and sanctification. This is worked out in two ways. First, often when Paul speaks of the, the good work that God has done, he's referring to the work of the Gospel and the Spirit in the life of the new believer. In your life, in mine. The transformative work of grace in the Gospel which leads to the fully formed Christ-like character. A very deep personal work in each and every one of us that God by His Spirit has set out to do. And then secondly, Paul also understands God's work in terms of the whole apostolic mission. And this is the greater frame that I was talking about a moment ago with these words that Paul declares. He puts a greater frame on the whole thing. God's good work is about the whole apostolic mission and the united family of believers that it produces. We could solidly render Paul's words here this way. I am quite confident that the good work God began in you in terms of your long-term partnership in the Gospel in every possible way, He will bring to glorious consummation and conclusion at the end when Christ returns. So, Paul undoubtedly thinks here of the individual believers. You and me. The individual believers of Philippi. He's thinking of individuals. And he assures them that when God powerfully reached out to them with the Gospel, and when they found it transforming them from the inside, producing faith in Jesus as the risen Lord and a love for Him and one another, God wasn't playing around. He was beginning a work which would continue right through to the day when Jesus would return and transform their present bodies, as He says in chapter 3, in verse 21, to be like Christ's glorious body. And then equally so, with that, Paul was thinking about the work of God in terms of the new community which had sprung up 
against all normal social and cultural expectations. A work of new creation in which neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, would count as membership-defining categories. You are the people of Christ. God had created a single, extraordinary, culturally inexplicable family. Just like Christ-like behavior in the last analysis is culturally inexplicable outside the Gospel, Paul is also anticipating his appeal in chapter 2 that he will be making. In verses 12 and 13 in particular, And we're going to get there and dig into that more fully. But he's anticipating what he's going to be saying there, that they work hard to show the results of your salvation. Work out what God has worked in you. Meaning, live out. Live it out. Everybody say, live it out. Live it out, Paul is saying. In Christian community, the salvation that Christ has has affected in them as the people of Christ in Philippi. Live it, Paul says. There's a new world that God has begun in Christ Jesus. A new way to be human. And the transformation, the new creation work that He has worked in you as individuals is also a work of community and family. And so as that new creation community and family, live that out. Live out the fruits of this repentance and this transformation and this good work that He is doing. For Paul, Christ's salvation always includes a transformed life. We don't stay the same. Paul understood Christ's salvation to always include a transformed life. And therefore, he emphasizes that they must Above all, live as citizens of heaven, conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And that's our key verse. You remember when we began this study together a few weeks ago, we we read that verse together. Living out loud the gospel of the kingdom. Living it out conducting ourselves above all he says live as citizens of heaven the people of Christ conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ so having created this family God is going to bring it to completion God is a finisher He doesn't do half a job. He doesn't start something and then leave it. How many know someone like that? 
Maybe you're a little bit like that. You, they start this and get partway, and then it's left, and then they start this, and then it, and then it's left, and then they start this, and and then it's left, and and so then all over the all over the house are all these things that are started and left, but never finished. Yeah, some of our wives are thinking of our husbands right now. All those things you started but never finished. Having created this family of God, God is going to bring it to completion. He will make that family all that He has intended that family to be. He will make us. God is determined. His face is set like flint toward us. He is committed and devoted to making us, to making His people, to making his community, his family here in the earth, his family here in this particular part of the earth, this region of greater Vancouver. He is committed to making us everything he intended us to be. The book of Revelation says this will be ultimately a great an uncountable number with every nation, every tribe, every tongue and people group worshiping together as part of the sign and symbol to the powers of the coming day when the, when the, the Messiah's dream will be fulfilled and the earth will overflow with the knowledge of Yahweh, God, as the waters cover the sea. Wow. And this is the vision that is shimmering before Paul as a glittering but certain hope. And he knows, and here he assures the Philippians and thereby is assuring us here today that God who began it will complete this work for the day of Messiah. God is not going to leave you half done. How many can say hallelujah to that? I know I'm grateful for that. I don't want to be left half done. <laughs> He's not going to leave us half done. He's going to complete what He has begun. Paul's job in the present, as in Colossians chapter 1, his letter to the Colossians, is to present every person mature in Christ. That is where this letter is going here in Philippians. That is where Paul's headed. That is his objective. To present every person Mature in Christ. So his overall mission is to complete the task of announcing Jesus under the nose of Caesar. So that the acclamation in the Greek, kyrios, 
Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, will you? Jesus is Lord. Say it again. Jesus is Lord. This, this acclamation will sing out the affirmation, Kyrios Caesar. Caesar is Lord. You see, that was the acclamation of the day in Philippi. It was commonly heard. Caesar is Lord. Again, you see how Paul is guiding the Philippians to enter in and to engage even with the acclamations of their culture and instead live a life that says, no, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord will outsing Caesar is Lord, both in volume and in quality. Being sung joyfully by a multi-trans-ethnic family at which Caesar can only look on in jealousy. God will complete that work, Paul says. He is determined to complete this work. And any smaller challenges that Paul or the Philippians may have in the meantime, and they would have them, including all the ones that would be had personally, are to be taken care of within the larger project of that which God has begun. He will complete. And nothing will stand in the way of that. No circumstance, no person, no situation, no adversity. God will complete it. And so this is how verse 6 undergirds the prayer of Paul in verses 3 to 5. All of this, all of this, the Philippians' devoted partnership in the gospel, expressed even in their sacrificial giving, the good work of grace, all of it was the new creation outworking of God. And it is commenced and carried on and crowned and completed by Yahweh in Christ and the coming day of His return. We hear echoes, loved ones. If you listen closely, we hear echoes here of Genesis in Paul's words. Where Yahweh's activity is described in Genesis chapter 2, how is it described? As good. And God created this. And God saw that it was good. And God did this on the third day. And God saw that it was good. Paul, no doubt, has in the back of his mind as he's writing this, he who began the good work, Yahweh's work and activity even in Genesis. Paul's certainty and confidence of its completion is grounded totally in God's sovereign, faithful, committed, creative, redemptive, and sustaining activity. For God is working in and among you, 
giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Would you lift your voices and read that with me? For God is working in and among you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. That's what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 13. God, loved ones, gives us the very will and the very desire to do what pleases him. We look at ourselves and we think, well, how is this ever going to, how am I ever going to get there? How is God ever going to be able to complete this work in me? We look at our congregation, our community. How is God ever? We see things through our natural eyes and think, how is that ever going to be possible? God gives us even the very will. And the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. Paul was unshakable in his confidence that the faith community at Philippi will be preserved in spite of all its sufferings and in the face of assaults which are leveled against it. And while Paul expressed great joy and gratitude over the Philippian people in Christ, their good past, present, and future, as we're about to see, his confidence has very little to do with them and everything to do with God. The perseverance of the saints rests entirely on the perseverance of God with the saints. That's talking about you and me. I'll say that again. The perseverance of the saints... You and me is entirely built upon the perseverance of God with the saints. God with us. Now this is the first mention in this letter of the coming day. Would you say that with me? The coming day. Say it again. The coming day. The coming day of Messiah. This is the first time Paul says this in this letter. Paul sees all of his work. The sharp, bright, small-scale work of grace and faith in the individual believer and the larger work of creating and sustaining Jesus-shaped communities. He sees it all in the light of the coming day of Messiah. How would we live our lives differently if we lived our lives all in the light of the coming day of Messiah? How would our decisions be different? How would our priorities be different? How would, how would the way we live our day to day, the attitudes we have, the outlook we have, how would all of that be different if it was all lived in light of the coming day of Messiah? Paul refers to this again in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Indeed, there is a sense in which all the work of the gospel 
is borrowed from the coming day of Messiah. It's all advance installments of the complete new creation work that God is doing, which Jesus will ultimately accomplish and complete upon His return. That's what the Gospel does, loved ones. That's what the Gospel does. It draws down from God's future what is needed for the present so that the present life itself becomes a set of signposts in us prophetically pointing towards the day of the coming of Messiah. The idea of the coming day is itself adapted by Paul. Again, from the Old Testament theme of the day of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, we hear that expression. And it's, it's the same as the coming day of Messiah, but it's, it's put in Older Testament terms. The day of the Lord. And now the day of the Lord focused on Jesus and His second coming. The, 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 the Greek word that's used there for this is parousia. Would you say that with me? Parousia. Parousia means presence. The days of the Lord's presence. And the days of the Lord's presence are increasing each day. His presence in the earth is becoming greater and greater and greater despite what we may see happening around us in the natural, through our natural eyes, through the, the news headlines, as far as God is concerned, this work that He has begun in Christ Jesus, He will complete in Christ Jesus. And even now, the presence of Christ Jesus is increasing in the earth through you and me. As the work that He began in each of us individually, He will bring to completion. The point, again, is God will complete what He began. So as Paul gives thanks for the Philippians, he looks back to the dawning of their faith, and on to its fulfillment on that day of the Lord's return. And his joyful confidence is held in place by that large-scale vision of the Lord's return. This eschatological vision, as it's called. The vision of the Lord's return. The coming of Messiah. Christ's coming return with His final exaltation and glorification, including all of those of us who are His. This is the not yet of salvation that Christ has already secured and the Holy Spirit appropriated in the life of the believing Christ follower. This is where we live. That tension that we live in, loved ones, that we've talked about before. The already but the not yet. This has already been accomplished in Christ, but yet is being carried out and completed and fulfilled until the day of Christ's return. God is going to finish what He started. 
God is going to finish what he started. In you and me, in us, his community in the earth, the people of Christ in the earth. I've already stated this, but it bears repeating as it concerns this clause here in verse 6. It is so familiar, this verse. Many of us have committed this verse to memory. It's a favorite verse of ours. There have been songs written about it. He who began a good work in you. It's so familiar to many of us that its place in the immediate as well as the larger context of this letter is easily overlooked and missed. Especially since it is not at once clear as to how it functions in this present sentence that Paul is writing. In particular, why does Paul round off his prayer of joyful thanksgiving for their longtime partnership with this reference to their certain future with the return of Messiah? He's thanking them for their faithfulness, for their commitment, for their financial giving, for their devotion in that way, past and present. They've endured with Him. And all of a sudden, he's talking about the return of Christ. Seems almost arbitrary and random. Paul's language here has a strong note of persuasion to it. And if we read between the lines of what he writes in verse 6, with this popular verse. It suggests to us that his primary purpose with this affirmation, he who began a good work, in, and its slight digressive nature, seems kind of random in all that Paul's saying here. His primary purpose is to speak to a larger issue brewing in the Philippian community. We may not have absolute certainty of this, but there are hints here and throughout the letter of Philippians that suggest that some of them had begun to lose the basic eschatological orientation of their faith that marks the life of all true, true Christ followers. What, what, in other words, their vision of the coming day of Messiah that was to light everything they did, the way they lived their life, that their lives entirely would be lived from this light of the coming day of Messiah. They were losing that. Now that sounds like today. I think as the people of Christ, we have gravely lost that vision. That vision of living our lives entirely in light of the coming day of Messiah. The light of His coming kingdom. The 
light that is to mark our lives. It is to be an identifying marker of our lives. Beloved, as the people of Christ, we are people of the future. A sure future that has already begun in the present. We are, as Paul puts it, citizens of heaven. Do you know your citizenship? I'm not asking you if you're Malaysian or Korean or Singaporean or Filipino. I'm not a- I- Do you know your citizenship? Because before you're all of that, you are a citizen of heaven. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying, live like that. Live from your citizenship. Now, we, we, we get this. Whether we realize it or not, we get this. How do I know we get this? Because we know how to live from our Filipino citizenship, don't we? We know the culture. We know the food. We know the menu. We know the language. And we live it. We know how to live from our Korean culture, our Filipino culture. Come on, say it with me. Salamapo. Come on. We know how to live from our Korean culture. We know how to live. We know the language. We know the cultural worldview. We, we know how to live from our citizenships. Paul says, before you are citizens in any of those ways, in Christ, you are citizens of heaven. Citizens of the kingdom. And before you live from any other place of citizenship, live from that place. And let it redeem those secondary citizenships. Whether they be Filipino, Canadian, Korean, whatever they, whatever, Malaysian, whatever it may be. Let that be secondary. He's not saying throw it out because it's a beautiful thing of God's design. But he's saying live as citizens from heaven through all of these others. The Philippians seem to be losing that. They're hints. It's not explicit, but it's implicit in the letter. And so Paul is feeling like, I've got to remind them of this. And we need to be reminded of this. Because I dare say that we have drifted from this even further than the Philippians were. Living from our citizenship. We are people of the future that has already begun now in the present. We are citizens of heaven who live the life of heaven, the life of the future in the present in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves and through whatever nationality and ethnicity we may be. And to lose this future orientation, to lose this eschatological orientation, which is just a big word to say to lose our orientation, our framework of the return of Christ in how we live, to lose that 
And especially as we're going to see in chapter 3 and verse 13 and 14, to lose the sense of straining toward what is ahead, toward the goal, to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward, is to lose too much, Paul says. And so it is that Paul takes this momentary digression, it seems, with this verse to remind the people of Christ in Philippi and to remind us that even in the midst of the present difficulties we may be facing, even in the midst of the adversity, even in the midst of the struggle and the circumstance that you may be going through right now in your life, in your home, in your family, that we might be going through as a community in the context here Even in the midst of all of these present difficulties, God has in Christ both guaranteed there, the Philippians, and our future, and blessed there and our present situation. God is with us. The one who began this work and is continuing this work and will complete this work is with us in the work. And this is the conviction that Paul had, that God will complete the good work that He has begun within and among them, persevering in it until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus the King returns. God is not going to give up on us. He will never give up on us. We may give up on Him, but He will never give up on us. As is often the case with these apostolic prayers that we see in Paul's letters, his prayers for the church, this also is a prayer that every pastor, every church leader might wish to use for the people in their care. Often in my own life of prayer, I pray the apostolic prayers over us. It's a prayer that I pray for you. That I pray for us. And I would also encourage every one of you to use this prayer for yourself and for us. It will completely reorient us and align us with the King and the Kingdom as we seek to be the people of Christ that live out loud the Gospel. before a watching world. And remember, as you make this prayer your own, and as you pray it, the reason you're praying it at all is that God has begun His good work in you all. And what God commences, He continues 
and he completes. Can everybody say yay and amen to that? 